Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we have the privilege of listening to a lecture presented at Beeson back in 1996 by Dr. Bruce K. Walkie. Does that name mean a lot to you? If you've been in the evangelical world of biblical scholarship, you will know that Bruce Walkie is one of the outstanding Old Testament scholars of our time. He has taught at Dallas Theological Seminary, at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, at Regent College for a number of years in Vancouver, and currently teaches at Knox Theological Seminary in Fort Lauderdale. I mention this to say that he's a person with a very wide and deep influence throughout the evangelical community and beyond. Uh, now, you're going to hear a lecture with a fascinating title, Does the Book of Proverbs Promise Too Much? What does he mean by that? I want to encourage you to hang in there with this lecture. It is a lecture. It's not just a popular meditation talk. And so the first, I'd say, 10 or 12 minutes, he's going through very carefully, verse by verse, a passage from the book of Proverbs. And he's laying a foundation. And then he'll enter into this whole question of what Proverbs actually has to say, how wisdom literature is an essential part of God's overall canonical revelation and how it speaks to us in our life today. So um, listen to this lecture delivered here at Beeson in 1996 by one of the truly outstanding Old Testament scholars of our time, Dr. Bruce Walkie. Does the book of Proverbs promise too much? I'm just delighted to be with you here and honored by your invitation it's been a pleasure to be with you. It's always good to come back into the South. I'm going to be working from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I've made my own translation there on one side of those sheets. Uh, you may, I think you'd be greatly served and helped by following. Again, if you don't have a copy, I invite you to move forward and get a copy of the translation. This lecture, then, I address the thorny question. Does the book of Proverbs promise too much? Most Christians will admit that the book of Proverbs' heavenly promises seem detached from earth's realities. Evangelicals confess the book's inspiration and intellectually assent to its authority. But emotionally, many cannot take the book seriously because its optimistic promises seem removed from the harsh reality of their experience. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12, brings the problem into sharp focus. I will divide this lecture into four parts. First, the translation, a word about its poetics, theological reflection, then on the problem, the heart of the lecture, and finally, an exposition, as I have time, of Proverbs 3.5. First of all, reading through the translation. My son, do not forget my teaching, and let your heart guard my commandments. The length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Kindness and reliability, perhaps the Hendiades, or reliable kindness, let them not leave you. Bind them upon your throat and find favor and a good repute in the eyes of God and humanity. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and in your own understanding do not rely. In all your ways know him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Healing let there be to your navel, the center of your body, and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first fruits of all your produce, and your granaries will be filled with plenty, and with new wine your vats will overflow. The discipline of the Lord, my son, do not reject and do not loathe his rebuke. 
because whom the Lord loves, he rebukes, even as the father the son in whom he delights. Now a word about its poetics, how it's put together, and why we isolate it as a separate pericope. The Iconium to Wisdom in 3, 1 through 12 is distinguished from that in 2, 1 through 22 in several ways. First, by the renewed address, my son, that separates out these pericopes in 2, 1 and 3, 1. Two, by the change of form on the syntactic level from a lengthy protestus in chapter 2, verse 1, which sets forth conditions, my son, if you accept my words, store up my commands within you. If you call out for wisdom, if you cry out for understanding, if you seek it as for silver and search for it as the hidden treasure, then comes all the promises of the rest of the book. That's in 2, 1 through 4, in chapter 2, rather. And then comes religious education. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, and he develops that in 5 through 8. And then you will understand what's right and just and fair, every good course. So he moves from, in chapter 2, from religious education to ethical education. And all of that is to save you, chapter 2 and verse uh, 9, to save you from the wicked man whose ways are perverse, and that runs for four way verses, and to save you from the uh, strange woman who has abandoned the covenant uh, she made with her God, or her God made with her. Instead, here we have six strophes, essentially consisting of admonitions in the odd verses. Listen to the teaching. Let love and fidelity never leave you. Trust in the Lord, and do not be wise in your own eyes, and so forth. In 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11, you have the admonitions to argumentation in the even verses. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12. And 3, it not only distinguishes itself by the new address and by a totally different syntactic structure with uh, conditions and then lengthy uh, blessings, but also on the paradigmatic level by changing the theme from admissions to embrace the Father's teaching in 2, 1 through 4 in order to find piety or religious education, as I said, to find the fear of the Lord, knowledge of God, and ethics to know what's right and understanding, and so be protected against the fatal voices and ways of apostate men and women in 2.13 and 22, to hear to admissions, to admonitions to accept the teaching in 3.1, to embrace ethics in 3.3, and then piety, all the next deal with the Lord, trust in the Lord, fear the Lord, honor the Lord, in 3.5.7 and 9, in order to obtain the more palpable physical and social benefits. We do not have problems in chapter 2 where we gain a religious education and ethical education. Our problem is in chapter 3 with these palpable benefits of long life, smooth path, uh, psychological and physical well-being. That's overflowing with new wine. That's our problem. This teaching in chapter 3 is even more strongly anchored in God than chapter 2. First, the admonitions progress from the typical introduction to keep the Father's teaching, verse 1, to the command not to abandon covenant love and fidelity to the community, verse 3, to establishing and maintaining a right relationship, uh, to establishing and maintaining a right relationship with God. Trust the Lord, verse 5. Paraphrasing it, to be humble before God, that is not to be wise in one's own eyes, and so think and behave impiously and wickedly, verse 7. To honor the Lord, verse 9, and to reject and not to reject the Lord's correction, verse 11. So you can see you move from the Father, verse 1, to the community, verse 3, and all the rest pertain to God in verses 5 through 11. Newsom argues by these six strophes or quatrains, the Father anchors his teaching even more strongly in Israel's transcending God. The Father begins, she observes, using the parallels, my Torah, my mitzvot, 
that as resonances of God's Torah, that is law, teaching, and mitzvot, commandments to Israel, and so subtly positions the Father in association with divine authority, end of quote. His appeals to have a right relationship with God in 5 through 12. Parallel, she further observes, quote, in structure and motivation, the Father's call for obedience to himself. In verses 1 through 4. And finally, she notes, it comes as no surprise that the passage concludes in verse 12 with the metaphor of God as Father reproving his Son. And what happens there is the Father hands the Son over to the Lord, who will become his Father later on in life, to discipline him. In theological terms, the admonitions in the odd verses of 3, 1 through 12 present the sons, the human covenant partner's obligations. And the arguments in the even verses present the Lord's, the divine covenant partner's obligations. The human partner, according to the odd verses, has the responsibility to keep ethics and piety. And the divine covenant partner, the Lord, has the obligation to bless his worshiper with peace, prosperity, and longevity. The argumentation for keeping the Lord's commandments is based on the tangible rewards that only the Lord can give. Long life and peace, verse 2. Favor with God and humanity, verse 4. A smooth path, verse 6. Psychological and physical health, verse 8. Abundant harvest, verse 10. And a heavenly Father's love, verse 12. In short, we can sketch its outline as this. Admonition, verse 1, keep my commands. The son's obligations. Argumentations, the Lord's obligations. Life and peace. Verse 3, don't let go of unfailing love. Promise, favor with God and people. Verse 5, trust the Lord. Promise, verse 6, know God in a straight path. Verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Verse 8, it will produce healing. Verse 9, honor the Lord. Verse 10, prosperity. Verse 11, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Verse 12, the Lord loves you. Overland, in his doctoral dissertation at Brandeis in 1988, observed that after the introductory strophe, which is a mixture of a negative command, my son, do not forget, and then a positive command, let your heart God, the alternation between negative commands in verse 3, uh, let them not leave you, and verse 7, do not be wise, and verse 11, do not reject. With the positive commands of verse 5, trust the Lord, and verse 9, honor the Lord. It's all carefully put together. I won't discuss the last strophe, verse 11 and 12, which has its own problems. I now turn to the heart of the lecture, theological reflections. Does this promise us too much? The palpable rewards presented in the argumentation, the Lord's obligations of 3, 1 through 10, however, confronts us with the theological problem. Do they promise too much? When applied to ordinary members of the covenant community, the interpreter of the text and of life may try to resolve the tension by explaining the problem lies in the human partner's failure to keep the commands not in the Lord's failure to keep his obligations. The expositor, like Eliphaz's friend, like Job's friend Eliphaz, might conclude that the individuals do not experience these promises because of original sin. Eliphaz asks, can a mortal be righteous before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And the whole argument that he has against Job that no one can uh, say they don't deserve sufferings because of original sin. Job chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, as you're well aware, that's basically Eliphaz's uh, record in all of his speeches. Like Job, however, most expositors, though conceding the problem of original sin, insist that this is not the reason for the apparently failed promises. 
Their rejection of the facile explanation by the likes of Eliphaz is validated by the life of Christ. Though without original sin or sin at all, he apparently did not enjoy these promises. Instead of enjoying long life, he died in the prime of life. Instead of a joy and favor with God and humanity, on the cross he lamented, My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Matthew 27, 46. As the crowds jeered, he trusts in God to deliver him. Let God rescue him. Matthew 27, 43. Instead of a smooth path, he experienced rejection at birth, escaped the slaughter of the innocent, lived as an exile in Egypt, confronted hostility every day of his ministry, and ended a lonely figure on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced such physical, uh, in the Garden of, instead of psychological and physical health, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced such trauma that the sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke 22:44, And on the cross, his malefactors so abused him that he no longer appeared human. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. How can it be said that the devout have bar barns overflowing with grain and vats that burst with new wine when the epitome of wisdom, caution, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? To resolve this obvious tension created by failed covenant promises, I will reject three false solutions and propose four to help us, at least that helped me, toward a resolution of the problem. First, I cannot accept that the Solomon or any sage was a dullard. He certainly was no less aware than Job that, quote, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent, Job 9, 22, and 23. As we noted in the lecture on wisdom in the 8 o'clock class this morning, the sage is characterized by astute observation and reflection. Note how he composes his proverb in 24, 30 through 34. I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment, Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a vagrant and scarcity like an armed man. End of quote. His laboratory was the field of the sluggard. I went past the field of the sluggard. And his method scientific, that is astute observation and cogent reflection. I applied my heart to what I observed. Observing that inedible growth, that is thorns and weeds, crowded out the edible growth, that is the cultivated vineyard. And that chaos, that is the stone wall and ruin, replaced the diligently constructed cosmos of the vineyard walls. He drew the conclusion that some hostile power informed the fallen creation, and that this deadly hostile force, if not overcome by wisdom and diligence, had the same damaging effects as a bandit plundering a man's house. Surely a person with these powers of observation and reflection knew with Kohelet that under the sun, quote, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with the good man, so with the sinner, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Ecclesiastes 9.2. Another solution unacceptable to me is that these promises are false, not true. Most academics, however, pit the optimism of the so-called older wisdom represented in the book of Proverbs against the pessimism of the younger reflect of the so-called younger reflective wisdom represented in the books of Job and Ecclesiastes. Von Rott, for example, says, and uh, as you know from reading German works, if you have a profound idea, you should express it profoundly so nobody understands it on first reading. <laughs> so uh, I'll read Von Rott directly, but you understand you've got to think about him a bit. 
The most radical view, the most common view of the radical thesis of Kohelet, that is Ecclesiastes, has, to be in this, has been to see in them a counterblow to old teachings which believed too optimistically, or better, too realistically, that they could see God at work in experience. According to the prevailing point of view, that is the interpretation of Kohelet, it would appear as if he were turning only against untenable statements, as if he were challenging a few no longer justifiable sentences, which presented the divine as too rational and too obvious phenomenon. Such sentences may in fact have existed. This explanation breaks down, however, for the reason that Kohelet is turning against not only outgrowths of traditional teaching, but the whole undertaking. Anyone who agrees with Kohelet, that is Ecclesiastes, in this can scarcely avoid the conclusion that the whole of old wisdom, that is Proverbs, has become increasingly entangled in a single false doctrine. Wisdom in Israel, page 233. It's a single false doctrine. William James agrees, and those who ponder Proverbs. For the tradition that Kohelet knows is more of a foil to him than anything else. His use of gnomic forms, for example, is often, quote, in order to contradict traditional wisdom. It's a direct contradiction. That's in uh, James Williams, those who ponder Proverbs, page 53. Again, he writes, his primary, that is Kohelet's primary literary mode of presentation of contrasting Proverbs, some of which may have been his own aphorisms, is in order to contradict traditional wisdom. Page 60. This common academic solution is not open to me because it undermines sound theology, which must be based on the integrity and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture. Paul said that all Scripture, including Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Yet if Job and Kohelet contradict Proverbs, we are left with God contradicting himself and speaking what makes no rational sense, that is nonsense. Moreover, our Lord, who himself on the cross does not seem to have experienced these promises, trusted this book. The book of Proverbs was part of the scriptures of which he said, they cannot be broken, John 10.35. Indeed, the apostles cite the book of Proverbs about 60 times as sacred scripture. A third solution not open to me is that which is very popular today in evangelicalism, is that the argumentation in the even verses of 3, 1 to 10 presents probabilities, not promises. As we shall see, there is an element of truth in this explanation, but it formulates the solution badly. As noted, the odd verses of our text set forth the obligations of the human covenant partners, the even those of the divine. Now, is it consistent to think that the human covenant partner must keep the commands perfectly, but the divine covenant partner does not? How unlike the faithful Lord to command his people, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, but not obligate himself to make their path smooth. Rather, he promises, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, 2 Timothy 3.13. Moreover, if it were a matter of probabilities, then I, for one, want to know the odds. If they are probably true 99% of the time, we would be well advised to keep the commands, such as not forget the teaching. But if the odds are only 51% of the time, maybe it isn't worth the sacrifice and the effort. Finally, how can the covenant partner trust in the Lord with all his heart when he's uncertain whether God will keep his part of the bargain? Psychologically, for me, that's impossible. These three solutions, namely the sage is a dullard, or a false teacher, or the argument he uses represents probabilities, not verities, are not valid for me. Let us now turn to four solutions that I find helpful. First, most would agree that these promises are partially realized in our experience. For keeping the Proverbs does not guarantee success under the sun. Nevertheless, experience often vindicates them. The sober 23, 9, 
29 through 35. The diligent, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. The sexually moral, chapter 26, 23 through 28. The peaceful and the wise in general. Not the drunkard, the sluggard, the sexually unclean, the hot-tempered, and the, and the fool enjoy abundant life and peace. Surely the sluggard, for example, as represented in Proverbs 24, 30 through 34, does not enjoy prosperity, favor, and a good name in the sight of God and man, a smooth path, psychological and physical well-being, and barns filled to overflowing and vats that brim over with new wine. The same applies to the drunkard. Who has, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Second, after they're partially validated by experience, we need to take into consideration the, the epigrammatic nature of the Proverbs. Individual proverbs express truth, but restricted by the aphoristic demands for terseness, they cannot express the whole truth. By their very nature, they are partial utterances which cannot protect themselves by qualifications. Von Rott rightly said, it is of the nature of an epigram that the truth is expressed with the greatest concentration on the subject matter and with a disregard of any presuppositions, attendant circumstances, etc. Because of this stylistic constraint, Proverbs must be read holistically within a total collection, as I was arguing on Tuesday morning. The character, act, consequence, nexus, or the character, conduct, consequence nexus, represented by the metaphor of the way. That is, what you sow, you reap. Represented in the strophes of our text must be modified by proverbs that qualify that nexus. As noted in the last lecture, the several better-than proverbs, better a little with righteousness than wealth with injustice, for example, was 16.8. In 15, 16, and 17, 16, 8, 16, 19, 17, 1, 19, 22b, 22, 1, 28, 6. All of these are better than Proverbs. Link righteousness with poverty and wickedness with wealth. And so make it perfectly plain that piety and morality do not invariably lead immediately to social and physical benefits. Moreover, many Proverbs recognize the failure of justice. Van Leeuwen notes, there are many sayings that assert or imply that the wicked prosper while the innocent suffer. Uh, for example, uh, um, when the Lord mocks the mockers, he will give grace to the oppressed. But there is a time when the mockers are triumphing over the oppressed. That's 334. The treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. 10.2. There are many such proverbs. 10.2, 11.16, 13.23, 14.31, And I'm reading them here, not to bore you, but to make the point, there are many qualifying proverbs. 18.23, 21.6, 21.7, 21.13, 19.13, 21.14, 21.15, 21.16, 21.17, 21.18, 21.19, 21.20, 21.21, 21.22, 21.23, 21.24, 21.25, 21.26, 21.27, 21.28, 21.29, 21.30, 21.31, 21.32, 21.33, 21.34, 21.35, 21.36, 21.37, 21.38, 21.39, 21.40, 21.41, 21.42, 21.43, 21.44, 21.45, 21.46, 21.47, 21.48, 21.49, 21.50, 21.51, 21.52, 21.53, 21.54, 21.55, 21.56, 21.57, 21.58, 21.59, 21.60, 21.61, 21.62, 21.63, 21.64, 21.65, 21.66, 21.67, 21.68, 21.69, 21.70, 21.71, 21.72, 21.73, 21.74, 21.75, 21.76, 21.77, 21.78, 21.79, 21.80, 21.81, 21.82, 21.83, 21.84, 21.85, 21.86, 21.87, 21.88, 21.89, 21.90, 21.91, 21.92, 21.93, 21.94, 21.95, 21.96, 21.97, 21.98, 21.99, 21.10, 21.11, 21.12, 21.13, 21.14, 21.15, 21.16, 21.17, 21.18, 21.19, 21.20, 21.21, 21.22, 21.23, 21.24, 21.25, 21.26, 21.27, 21.28, 21.29, 21.30, 21.31, 21.32, 21.33, 21.34, 21.35, 21.36, 21.37, 21.38, 21.39, 21.40, 21.41, 21.42, 21.43, 21.44, 21.45, 21.46, 21.47, 21.48, 21.49, 21.50, 21.51, 21.52, 21.53, 21.54, 21.55, 21.56, 21.57, 21.58, 21.59, 21.60, 21.61, 21.62, 21.63, 21.64, 21.65, 21.66, 21.67, 21.68, 21.69, 21.70, 21.71, 21.72, 21.73, 21.74, 21.75, 21.76, 21.77, 21.78, 21.79, 21.80, 21.81, 21.82, 21.83, 21.84, 21.85, 21.86, 21.87, 21.88, 21.89, 21.90, 21.91, 21.92, 21.93, 21.94, 21.95, 21.96, 21.97, 21.98, 21.99, 21.10, 21.11, 21.12, 21.13, 21.14, 21.15, 21.16, 21.17, 21.18, 21.19, 21.20, 21.21, 21.22, 21.23, 21.24, 21.25, 21.26, 21.27, 21.28, 21.29, 21.30, 21.31, 21.32, 21.33, 21.34, 21.35, 21.36, 21.37, 21.38, 21.39, 21.40, 21.41, 21.42, 21.43, 21.44, 21.45, 21.46, 21.47, 21.48, 21.49, 21.50, 21.51, 21.52, 21.53, 21.54, 21.55, 21.56, 21.57, 21.58, 21.59, 21.60, 21.61, 21.62, 
these scholars pit the so-called unrealistic sayings of Proverbs, such as the five strophes in Proverbs 3, 1 through 10, against the realism of Kohelet and Job, thereby easily discrediting the former. This solution regarding the epigrammatic nature of Proverbs, however, must be held in connection with the next two arguments. Otherwise, it would appear to reinforce the solution that the Proverbs present probabilities, not guarantees. I now then turn to my third argument. Third, Solomon was concerned in Proverbs to teach Israel's youth the ABCs of morality. He kept before the youth the end of the matter, how it all turns out, not the temporary exceptions and qualifications when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. The future will ultimately validate the character-at-consequence nexus, turning the present often upside-down world right, as in 11.4, 11.7, 11.18, and on and on and on. The genre effect of Proverbs, in contrast to that of Job and Ecclesiastes, is clearly brought out in Proverbs chapter 24, 15, and 16. Do not lie in wait like an outlaw against a righteous man's house. Do not raid his dwelling place. Now note, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. Proverbs 24, 15 through 16. The clause, though a righteous man falls seven times, assumes that the righteous man may fall seven times. Seven, recall, is the number of completeness. It's symbolic. He's out. To paraphrase the proverb, the righteous man may be knocked out for the count of ten. However, the proverb throws that reality away in a concessive clause. Though that happens seven times, it rushes ahead to how it all turns out. He rises again. That's the focus. Job and Kohelet, however, have a different focus, a different genre effect. They are concerned with events under the sun and focus on the righteous man flattened on the mat for the count of ten. They do not focus on his rising, though they do not rule that out. To recast the proverb in their genre, it would read this way. It would reverse the concessive and main clauses. Though a righteous man rises again, he falls seven times. Proverbs differs from the younger reflective wisdom because it is presenting the primer on morality, the way things turn out. The wisdom books differ fundamentally in this genre effect. Fourth and finally, that future, beyond the temporarily failed promises, outlasts clinical death. It's also said in 221 through 22. To be sure, the future is not accessible to verification, as Gladstone notes critically in his doctoral dissertation at Vanderbilt in 1978. But without faith in the ethical God who controls the future, one cannot please God. If one can live by sight in realized promises, not by faith in God to fulfill them, why is there a need for the command, trust in the Lord? Proverbs 3.5. Before turning to three or four proper individual proverbs that point to an immortality that outlasts death, wherein the promises such as those found in the argumentation of 3, 1 through 10 find their fulfillment, let us note that the argument of the book implies such a pers perspective. The pericope in 1, 10 through 19, after the book's preamble in 1, 1 through 7, and its first strophe to hear its teaching, 1, 8 through 9, represents innocent blood going to a premature death at the hand of thugs. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some innocent soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave, Sheol, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse. 1, 11 through 14. In verse 10, blood, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, 
in versa A, an innocent in versa B, let's waylay some innocent soul, are two parts of a broken stereotype phrase. In prose literature, you often get innocent blood, here that's broken apart. Together, they refer to innocent blood. Admittedly, Solomon does not represent the innocent as actually dispatched to a premature death, but he unquestionably assumes the possibility as real. On the other hand, as we saw in the last lecture, the inspired king clearly and repeatedly taught that the Lord will cause the righteous to triumph over the wicked. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to surrender to him, Proverbs 16, 7. In order for the innocent, such as righteous Abel, who was dispatched to a premature death to triumph over the wicked, the victory must take place in a future that outlasts Sheol. Since the biblical doctrine of retribution fails to reflect human experience, Farmer, in her commentary on Ecclesiastes in, uh, 19, uh, in um, 1993, I think it was, no, 1991, page 206, uh, she says rightly, one, has either to, one either has to give up the idea of justice or one has to push its execution into some realm beyond the evidence of human experience. We now turn to consider three or four texts that explicitly teach immortality. The first is Proverbs 12, 28. In the path of righteousness is life. In the course of its byways, Derek Ntiva is Almavet, immortality. This synthetic parallel, which concludes the pericope of chapter 12, expresses in a creative and intensive way that the righteous retain a relationship with God forever. Here we need to define life in verset A and defend the translation immortality in verset B. First of all, in the path of righteousness is life. The noun-glossed life, hayim, occurs 33 times in the book, and the verb hayah, to live, four times. After analyzing its uses, William Kasa draws the conclusion that life, hayim, in the canonical wisdom literature, sometimes has a technical significance that is the fuller, more satisfying way of living to be enjoyed by those who seek wisdom and find her a sense which can be best rendered in English by some such phrase as full life, fullness of life, life indeed, he says. In the ancient Near East, this kind of life was eternal. The schools where wisdom was taught in Egypt were called schools of life. Moreover, in Egyptian instruction, which shares so many points of continuity with Proverbs, life entails eternal life beyond clinical death. Solomon gives us no reason to think that his concept of life was any less eternal. In biblical theology, full life is essentially a relationship with God. According to Genesis 2.17, disruption of the proper relationship with the one who is the source of life means death. The day you eat thereof, you will die, and they died when they ate of it. Wisdom is concerned with this proper relationship and so with this kind of life. The fear of the Lord is foundational to wisdom. God continues forever to be the God of the wise, delivering them from the realm of death, Genesis, uh, Proverbs 10.2. As Jesus argued against the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, Matthew 22:32. Clinical death is only a shadow along the trail in the relationship of the wise with the living God. Death in Proverbs is the eternal opposite. Uh, death in Proverbs is the opposite of this full life. The wisdom teachers never describe the wicked as in the realm of light and life. Rather, they are in the realm of darkness and death a state of being already dead because they have no relationship with the living God, God, but not yet clinically dead. 
The texts predicting the eternal death of the wicked do not refer to a premature clinical death, as, say, Toy and many argue. For example, the father cautions his son not to apostatize because, quote, at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. That's not a premature death. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 11. Death and life are eternal states that extend beyond the present into the indefinite future. The condition of the righteous lies before God, 10, 16, and 17, who admits them into the realm of eternal fellowship with him, 2, 19, 3, 18, and 22, 10, and 11. The wise in the book of Proverbs enjoy an unending relationship with the living God. We now turn to defend the gloss, immortality, in 1228b. Here we have a textual problem. All the ancient versions and more than 20 medieval codices reads, unto death, the way is unto death. El Mavid, Aleph Segol Lamed, El Mavid, not Aleph Patach, A-L, Al Mavid. Immortality, the text of the great majority of the codices within the Masoretic tradition. Text critical, philological, contextual, and theological arguments favor the majority reading of the Masoretic tradition. Regarding the text, three factors must be borne in mind. First, the phrase Almavet, in contradistinction to Elmavet, immortality versus unto death, is a hapax legomenon. It only occurs here. And so the more difficult reading to explain the way. Second, the reading of the versions demands that one also amend the byways of netivah in the phrase. It takes more emendation than simply el mavet. Death, a less rooted firmly in a reliable oral tradition. In our grammar, we argued, a complex body of evidence indicates the Masoretic text could not in any serious or systematic way represent a reconstruction or faking of the data. End of quote. We also argued, following as well as drawn the conclusions independently, James, James Barr in uh, Ancient Texts text and Comparative Semitic Philology, in cases involving the oral tradition, we're dealing here with Aleph L, and it's a, a lament, and it's a question whether you put an E in there or an A in there, a Segol or, or a Patach. MT is preferred to the ancient versions. So from a text-critical point of view, it is the more difficult reading and uh, more satisfied. From a philological point of view, we note that though the phrase is otherwise unattested in Biblical Hebrew, I said it's a hotbox, it is attested in the Northwest Semitic languages from mid-second millennium B.C. to Mishnaic Hebrew. Evan Shoshan lists the term as an ordinary word for immortality in post-Biblical Jewish sources. Moreover, the term also denotes immortality which has an Ugaritic Baal-Mavit, but it's equal to Al-Mavit, denotes immortality in the Ugaritic text at about 1400 B.C., as documented most recently in KBL 4. The, ninth, the English translation has added material that was not in KBL 3, the German original German edition, to argue that this word Al-Mavit means immortality and going back to this ancient material. That's on page 48 of... Uh, Volume 1. The combined evidence, says Sawyer, quote, indicates a remarkable continuity of meaning from mid-second second millennium B.C. Syria to post-biblical Jewish literature. So it is attested from 1400 B.C. right on down to Mishnaic Hebrew, though it's very difficult and unusual, but not too difficult. From the contextual point of view, one expects here a synthetic not an antithetic parallel, you see, because it says that you have these uh, in the path of righteousness as, as life along that path is immortality. You expect a synthetic parallel. This is in contradistinction to McCain because, as you're well aware, these are mostly antithetical parallels. 
and the versions give you antithesis. But when you end a pericope in what I talked about last hour as collection A from Skladny of 10 to 15, you end pericopes with synthetic parallels. They're rare because they're at the end of the pericopes, which is the case here. Blocks of proverbs in the A collection, 10 through 15, regularly end in the rare synonymous or synthetic parallelisms. And a new block begins with an aphorism pertaining to the teachability of the wise and the incorrigibility of fools, exactly what you have in 13.1. The relationship of 12.28 to 13.1 exactly matches that of 11.31 and 12.1. Delich agrees. The proverb 1228 is so sublime, so weighty, that it manifestly forms a period, a conclusion. This is confirmed from the following proverb, which begins like 10.1, and anew stamps the collection as intended for the youth. That's in Dalich on page 269 and following, though Dalich is not aware of poetics as we are today, but he was aware of this. So I argue from a contextual point of view, I expect a synthetic, not the antithetic parallelism of the versions. So I've argued it textually, I've argued it philologically, I've argued it contextually. Theologically, the book consistently implies the immortality of the righteous. Its explicit expression here is no surprise. Says Dalich, nothing is more natural than that the chokmah, in its constant contrast between life and death, makes a beginning of expressing the idea of athanasia without death. The doctrine is found, is not found only in the later wisdom of Solomon, contradistinction to Meinhold, page 216. Wisdom of Solomon says clearly, for righteousness is immortal, 115. Again, God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity, 223. A second verse that also more explicitly teaches that the righteous have a future that outlasts death is 1432. This reads, the wicked person is thrown down by his own evil, but the righteous is one who takes refuge in the Lord when he dies. At stake here is when he dies. He takes refuge in the Lord when he dies. That's Masoretic text. However, here too we face a textual problem. Instead of reading when he dies, Hebrew bemoto, the concepts being bait, maim, tav, vav, the Septuagint reads, poithos te haotu hasioteti. That is, the righteous is the one who trusts in his holiness, not when he dies. He trusts in his holiness, hasioteti. In his holiness can be retroverted to betumo. That's the word is attested in 1 Kings 14.41 and 3 Kings 9.4 in Septuagint. In short, the difference between the MT and the Septuagint in the unvocalized text involves the slight metathesis between bet maim tav vav versus bait tav maim vav. It's a metathesis of the M and the T. If you put the M first, you read bait B-M-T-W, then you have when he dies. If you read B-T-M-W, then you have in his integrity. It's that metathesis. It's that simple. Yet that profound to resolve it. The resolution of this textual problem is found in a lexical study of Hosea, glossed here, the one who takes refuge in the Lord. This calactic participle derives from the same root as the noun translated refuge in 1426. In an antithetical parallel similar to this one, the Lord says, a mere breath will blow the idols away. But the man who makes me his refuge, that's our word, will inherit the land, Isaiah 57, 13. The root chazach het samik hey, translated takes refuge, occurs 37 times in the Old Testament and always with the meaning to seek refuge, never to have a refuge as it is in the NIV. And I'm partly responsible for that. I hadn't done this kind of thorough word study. It doesn't mean has a refuge. It means seeks a refuge. That's different. Or, 
to find a refuge, as in the New Revised Standard Version. It does never means to have a refuge or find a refuge. It always means to seek a refuge. Thirty-four times, not counting Proverbs 14.32, it is used more or less explicitly with reference to taking refuge in God, the Lord, or under the shadow of his wings, as in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. The two exceptions are Isaiah chapter 40, verse 14, verse 32, and Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 2. But these two exceptions actually prove the rule. In Isaiah 30, verse 2, Isaiah gives the expression an exceptional in Isaiah 14.32, the afflicted take refuge in Zion, a surrogate for God. In Isaiah 30, in verse 2, Isaiah gives the expression an exceptional meaning because he uses sarcasm, to take refuge in the shadow of Egypt. His intended meaning, however, is that the Jerusalemites should have sought refuge in the Lord, not Egypt. The Cal participle of Hazar found here or the occurrence of Hazar in a relative clause, who takes refuge, denotes always a devout worshiper, one who seeks refuge in the Lord. One other time beside Proverbs 14.32b, the cow participle is used absolutely, simply saying the one who takes refuge, but you have to supply in the Lord. There's only two passages where that occurs, the other passage being Psalm 17.7. Here's Psalm 17:7. Show the wonder of your love, O Savior, of those who take refuge. Moshiach Hosein, Psalm 17:7. NIV here rightly glosses, Savior of those who take refuge in you. Gaboroni, in the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, volume 5, page 71, agrees that the cow participle has the same religio-ethical sense in Proverbs 14:32 as in Psalm 17:7. He too translates it, those who take refuge in the Lord. Plega and Meinhold, in the Plega in the BKAT, the Biblical Commentar series of Meinhold, Indy Spricker, 1991, in Zurich Babel, independently also reached the conclusion that Yahweh is always the stated or unstated object of Hosea. McCain, citing Baruch, uncomfortably recognizes this is the meaning of the MT in Proverbs 14.32. He concedes it must mean that. In the light of this consistent use of Hosea, the MT reading to seek refuge in the Lord when he dies is far more probable than the Septuagint reading to seek refuge in his integrity. As stated, the Lord, never one's own integrity, is always the object of the verb to seek refuge. Not only does this lexical study support MT over against the Septuagint, but so does the book's overall theology. The book of Proverbs teaches its audience to trust in the Lord, not in their own integrity. Proverbs 3.5 commands trust in the Lord. Likewise, the prologue to the third so-called 30 sayings of the wise asserts that your trust may be in the Lord, I teach you today, even you. Proverbs 23.19. Tori responds that the Septuagint, quote, seeks a refuge in his righteousness does not involve self-righteousness, but is simply the general teaching of Proverbs as to the reward of the righteous, end of quote. If Hazar meant to find a refuge, as glossed in the NIV and the New RSV, the notion of a reward could be read into the text. But since it means to seek a refuge, it cannot have that meaning. But Cain confesses, well, I should say here, against exegetical and theological expectation, but Cain follows the Septuagint, but he who relies on his own piety is a righteous man. But he confesses. He rejects the MT for dogmatic, not for exegetical reasons. He says simply, quote, I do not believe that the sentence originally asserted this belief in the afterlife. It's just an assertion. It's his dogmatics that won't allow it in the book the whole liberal interpretation of this book. Meinhold reluctantly concedes, who doesn't believe in the immortality in the book, but he reluctantly concedes this proverb, which sees a refuge for the righteous that lies beyond the limits of death, is exceptional, he says. In truth, however, the proverb as witnessed in M.T. is entirely consistent with the historical context of the ancient East and with the rest of Proverbs. In short, 
In this proverb, ultimate destinies are clearly in view. Even when dying, the righteous has all the security of a devout worshiper. But the wicked will find his evil boomerangs, boomerangs on him at that time. Rashi comments on this verse, when the righteous man will die, he is confident that he will come to the Garden of Eden. End of quote. Finally, we need to, and I'm just taking these key texts that I'm exegeting. Finally, we need to take note of the important term achadrit in Proverbs 23, 17, and 18, and Proverbs 24, 19, and 20. Literally, it refers to, quote, the end of something, but is rightly glossed future hope by NIV in these Proverbs. Do not let your, do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely an achorit. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 23, 17, and 18. Again, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no acharit, no future hope, and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Proverbs 24, 19, and 20. Commenting on this important term, which is used similarly in Psalm 49:16, von Rott helpfully comments, one can never judge life in accordance with the appearance of the moment, but one must keep the end, akarit, in view. This important term, which is so characteristic of thinking, which is open to the future, cannot always have referred to death. One can also translate the word by future. What is meant, therefore, is the outcome of the thing, the end of an event for which one hopes. Commenting on its use in Psalm 49.16, he says, the most likely solution, then, is to understand the sentence as the expression of a hope for a life of communion with God which will outlast death. That says exactly what I'm trying to say. End of quote. I'm not saying that it's all, it's, all I'm saying is that the Proverbs are saying they're partially validated by experience because we live long enough to see the sluggard or the drunkard lose the fortune. I'm saying that it's epigrammatic in its nature, and that must be held in the realization it's looking at the end of the matter. And the end of the matter is how it all turns out. I'm not saying it's all beyond the grave. I'm just saying the future guarantees the promises. Whether now or beyond the death, this, the resurrection is not clearly in this book, and it's not been brought to light until the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, clearly to light. It's just the future. This is how it turns out. Well, my time is gone, and I don't have time to the wonderful proverb of trust in the Lord with all your heart. So instead of going into a lengthy exegesis of trust and uh, the philosophy of it all, uh, let me just simply say, when it's, let, me use a, let me engage in a preaching here. Trust in the Lord. And the point of it is you have to do it entirely. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do it entirely. I didn't have this in the paper, but if I was preaching, this is how I would illustrate. It's a good illustration. I had a, I had a uh, colleague at Dallas, and uh, his father came from deep Georgia. And I don't know, but evidently, according to him, his father had never seen a river frozen over. After this, wi this winter, I'm not so sure he could have said that. But at any rate, uh, he was traveling up in northern Pennsylvania, got up to the Susquehanna. And as he got up into northern Pennsylvania at the Susquehanna, it was steaming in the cold and it looked like ice, but he wasn't sure that you could really walk on water. He had never tried this. That was a, that's a big river, by the way. So he got down on all fours, and he put out his left hand and tested the ice. He put out his right hand and tested the ice. Finally, he screwed up his courage and pulled out his left knee, and finally his right knee. Now he has all four out on the ice. When he hears a rumbling sound behind him, and here came four horses drawing a wagon, charged down the bank, charged onto the ice and up the other side. And there was his grandfather, just out there. I thought it's a tremendous parable of the way some people approach life. Some of them just charge out trusting the Lord, and others of us are just about out there. But it says, do it, uh, do it entirely. Do it exclusively with all your heart, and do it exhaustively in all your ways. Acknowledge him. Let me conclude. 
If the life of Christ came to an end on the cross, the covenant proverb, promises of Proverbs, such as those found in Strophes 3 through 10, 1 through 10, failed. However, if we pursue the career of Christ to Easter Sunday, then God faithfully fulfilled the obligations he graciously took upon himself. Today our Lord enjoys life and prosperity. Saints around the world praise him, and at his name every knee will bow. When we travel the road from the cross to the tomb to the resurrection to his ascension into heaven, we can say his is a straight path. As the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of God. Let us then fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We'll conclude with a, a prayer. Father, we thank you for the sure word that you've given to us. Thank you that you're not a God who speaks one yes and no at the same time. You're not a God of nonsense. Thank you that it's clear we can trust you. Thank you that our Lord brought immortality to light through his resurrection from the dead, that being raised in the midst of time, he guarantees us that we shall be raised at the end of time. Thank you that he fulfills the Proverbs, that he fulfills all of its righteousness and wisdom for us. We offer you our praise and commit our lives afresh to you that we may trust you with all of our hearts and that we may not be wise in our own eyes and that we may know you in every experience of life and the benediction of your pleasure upon us. With this confidence, we dismiss ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.